Either this church will glow and grow or it will dry and die. It will either evangelize or it will fossilize. But I want to tell you, it cannot remain still. And I know there are these folks who are so super spiritual and say, well, you know, I'm just not interested in numbers. Well, you can't have read these first six chapters in Acts to know that God is but interested in numbers because numbers represent people for whom Jesus Christ died and bled and came to save. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're continuing our study of 1 Timothy, one of three pastoral epistles written by the Apostle Paul. Last time we looked at the importance and qualification of elders as outlined in chapter 3. Today, Dr. Brogy looks at another office mentioned in this section of Scripture, and that's the position of deacon. Let's join Pastor Carl as he begins reading from 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you remember from our last study in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul addressed guidelines for selecting elders, pastors, overseers, bishops, four terms used interchangeably in the New Testament. He addressed the qualifications for a pastor in the local church. And so logically, he moves now from the office of overseer to the office of servant. And I say the office of servant because that's really what the word deacon means. The word deacon is actually from a Greek word that we've transliterated into our English language. It doesn't have an English origin. The word diakonos, or it's verbal diakoneo, is, from, is the Greek word from which we get our word deacon. Its noun form simply means a servant. Its verb form means to serve. Now, I know in the secular world that a servant is a little bit of a put-down. To call somebody a servant, uh, well, you know, they're looked upon sometimes as a human tool instead of a person of dignity and purpose. And serving is often relegated to the mule-type kind of person who does some of those tasks that other people just don't want to do or tasks that sometimes people consider unimportant. But in the Christian world, the word servant is a term of high respect. In fact, it is so important in God's mind, he has formalized an office called the office of servant or the office of deacon. Now, in our passage this morning, Paul gives us some of the qualifications for a deacon. And so please don't tune me out because I know the temptation for some of you might be, well, you know, I have no plans ever to be a deacon. I don't think I'll ever be a deacon. So why do I really need to listen to this sermon? Well, number one, because if you are saved, God has commissioned you to teach the whole counsel of God. Maybe not as I would, but in some sense, if you're a growing, maturing Christian, you ought to be able to answer people's questions from the Bible. And if you don't have the answers, you ought to find those answers. Not to mention the fact that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired, and the Bible says it is profitable. 
And so what we're looking at this morning is profitable for anyone. And since deacons like elders are to be examples to the flock, I know that these character qualities really apply both to you and to me. In fact, the character traits ought to be sought by any person who wants to be a godly servant. Now, servanthood is very important to the Lord Jesus. Remember his words, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so none of us are excused from this list because Paul is really delineating the marks of a true godly man or woman who chooses to serve God's people. And my desire this morning is to give you a biblical, biblical theology on the office of deacon, whether you're a deacon or not. Now, there on the back of your bulletin, for those of you that are new and with us for the first time, I've provided a note-taking outline. And there are three general truths concerning the office of deacon that I hope to encapsulate into your theology of deaconhood. First, we're going to consider the creation of the office. How and why did the office of deacon begin? You know, there are only two offices in the New Testament church, the office of elder and the office of deacon. That's why when Paul writes the church at Philippi, he can say, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. But unlike the office of elder that had its origin in the Old Testament, the office of deacon is distinctly a New Testament office. So where did it come from? What was its origin? In addition to the creation of the office this morning, we want to consider the credentials for the office. What are the qualifications for a man who wants to serve as a deacon? And we have to ask that very important question, can women serve in the office of deacon as some are claiming today? And then finally, we'll conclude with the compensation that comes from the office. So let's get started with the creation of the office. By the time Paul writes his first letter to Timothy, the office is well established. He's not writing to share the need to begin an office, for it's already in place. He's simply sharing the, the, the qualifications for someone who would serve in the office. And so the epistles reveal the existence of deacons, the earliest of the epistles. And so the question we need to ask is, when precisely did this office begin? Well, you would expect that it probably began where the church began, namely in Jerusalem, and you would be absolutely right if you thought that way. Hold your finger here, would you, and go for just a moment to Acts chapter 6. The book of Acts is a critical book to your understanding of Scripture. Acts is to the New Testament what Genesis is to the Old Testament. The book of beginnings, Genesis, is very, very important for you to understand much of what unfolds in the Old Testament. And the book of Acts is very important for you to understand as to what unfolds in the New Testament. And the book of Acts covers really the very first 30 years of church history. From, from the ascension of our Lord into heaven to the people taking the gospel even to the remotest part of the earth. And what we find in Acts chapter 6 is a growing, vibrant church, much like this church is by the grace of God. And of course, the devil's kingdom is always threatened by any church that's growing, any church that's winning people to Christ, anyone that's maturing the saints so that they become a viable witness for the Lord. And so when that happens, the devil does everything in his power to try to slow a church down or to stop them. Back in Acts chapter 4... You find the established religious officials arresting the apostles. 
They try to scare them into not preaching what they've seen and heard. But the apostles said, we cannot stop. We must obey God rather than men. And when that doesn't work, when they can't scare them into stopping, they try to um, corrupt them in Acts chapter 5. And there we see the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira, actually two believers in the church that the devil tries to use to try to corrupt the church. So when that doesn't work, well, the devil takes a more frontal approach and he tries not simply to scare them or corrupt them, but to stop them altogether. And when that plan backfires in Acts 5, when we come to Acts 6, we try, find the devil trying to distract the saints of God. There's a complaint. There's a murmuring in the rank and file of Christians that in such order potentially distracts the apostles who are called to lead. And so the apostles recognize the need for a New Testament office, one that is distinct to this era. And I want you to notice the steps that these men go through. First, I want you to see how they diagnose the problem. Look, if you will, in verse 1. Now this time, while the disciples were increasing in number. Now if you've read Acts up to this point, you know that the church has grown in quantum leaps. It started in the upper room with 120. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved in one day. A few days later, Peter stands up to preach again and 5,000 heads of household are saved, excluding the women and the children that gave their lives to the Lord. Because you see, where the preaching of the gospel is, there's life. And where there's life, there's growth. And this church was growing, not because this, uh, these apostles that attended a church growth conference, not because the choir was slick, not because they had a beautiful building, because they had no such building. They were growing because the people were talking about Christ. What is on your heart, Jesus said, will be reflected on your lips. It says in Acts 5:42 and every day in the temple from house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And please understand, the growth that God has given us has absolutely nothing to do with brick or mortar or land. It has absolutely nothing to do with some slick technique that the church is being presented in our day in order to market itself. We are growing by the grace of God largely because the people of God in this fellowship are excited about Christ. And when you're excited about Christ, you can't help but gossip about Christ. You can't help but speak about your Savior. But I want to tell you, any church that loses its first love, any church that thinks that growth is automatic is headed for disaster. Now, let me remind you, as the Lord continually reminds me, that if our hearts grow cold, God will lift His hand of blessing. He'll take the candlestick away from us. And we must remain as a church dependent upon the Lord, seeking Him, honoring Him above all else. And we have to examine our lives and we have to make sure that we're growing together in the grace of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with a small church, please understand. But any church, big or small, that's not growing is not healthy. Now, some churches can record its growth in numbers and they see it visibly in that respect. Other churches may stay at a certain number because the door is revolving. They reach a lot of people for Christ that will leave because of the kind of community that they're in. This past year, we lost over 250 people in our church, but God allowed us to continue to grow even numerically. But a lot of our military have left and they will leave. But that's exciting. To me, it is anyway. I view them as paid for missionaries by the U.S. government. But how can any church 
that is surrounded by lost people who've been commissioned by Jesus Christ to reach those lost people not grow. It's a contradiction in terms to the very function and nature of the church. A church is to be involved in reaching people for Jesus Christ and then in feeding those people that they might grow to maturity. And where there is preaching of the word, there is new birth. Where there's new birth, there is life. When the people are fed, there is growth. Where there's growth, there is health. And where there's health, there's reproduction because healthy sheep will reproduce. But listen to me this morning. Either this church will glow and grow or it will dry and die. It will either evangelize or it will fossilize. But I want to tell you, it cannot remain still. And I know there are these folks who are so super spiritual and say, well, you know, I'm just not interested in numbers. Well, you can't have read these first six chapters in Acts to know that God is but interested in numbers because numbers represent people for whom Jesus Christ died and bled and came to save. But with a growing church will often come growing pains because where there is life, there's growth, and where there's growth, there's problems. Let's read verse 1 in its entirety. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. You know what growing pains are? Some of you have teenagers and they complain, oh, their legs hurt, their arms hurt because their bones are growing or, you know, their face breaks out, their hair can't do what they want it to do, um, you know, their voice cracks and so on. And God makes a lot of parallels in the New Testament of spiritual growth to physical growth. And churches that are growing many times will experience problems. Any growing church, though, has to ask the question, how will we minister to these people to whom God has entrusted us? And the challenge typically is taken sometimes to the extreme, in one of two extremes. Some will simply conclude, look, we can't minister, so let's not grow. Let's keep the nucleus we have, one, 200, maybe 300 folks at the max, where it's close, it's personal, everybody knows everybody else. And that's one of the reasons that the average church in America is only about 100 people. Only 1% of the churches in America have over 500 people on any given Sunday. On the other end of the spectrum, you have those people who say, yeah, well, we ought to grow. God commands his church to grow. But I don't want to get involved in the process. I don't want to get my hands dirty. And so what sometimes you have is a collection of people who are unwilling to get involved in each other's lives. Well, that's not the way it's supposed to happen. And the apostles knew that. And so first they diagnosed the problem. There is a complaint. If you're using the old King James, it says there's a murmuring. And this murmuring, we're told, is between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Now, the Hellenists were Jews who were converted to Jesus Christ, who lived outside of Palestine in the Greek culture. They spoke Greek, they thought Greek, they followed the Greek lifestyle. And of course, the Hebrews were the native Palestinian Jews who spoke Aramaic, a sister language to Hebrew. And during Pentecost, if you remember, the church was birthed not outside of Palestine, but in Palestine in the city of Jerusalem. And a lot of the uh, Hellenistic Jews decided to stay. I mean, it was wonderful. All that God had promised for hundreds and hundreds of years was now fulfilled. Messiah had come. And they wanted to learn everything that they could about the Messiah so that as they went back to their respective countries, they could spread the gospel. And in the process, some of the Hellenists 
their widows were being overlooked in this Meals on Wheels ministry. And so there was a dispute because there as the church grew up on the home turf of the Hebrew Jews, some of the Hellenistic Jews who had widows were being overlooked. Now, I might say there's nothing in this passage anywhere that even suggests that the problem was due to prejudice. Now, chapter 5 there at the end indicates that the problem grew out of growth. The fact that these outsiders were being neglected became a problem because the church was growing so fast. However, the apostles with great wisdom handle the problem so that the devil will not get a foothold. Now, the people murmured. You know what a murmuring is, right? It's a half-uttered, half-concealed complaint that you have with another person. And instead of going to the right person at the right time who can be a part of the solution, you go and you just murmur. You just complain. Now, growth problems. Some churches don't have them because they're just plain dead. But where there's growth, there are problems because where there is movement, there is friction. And by the way, don't think for a moment that strong leadership is a guarantee that there will be no problems. This church in Jerusalem had some very strong, capable leaders. Did you notice who they're, what they're referred to as? The Twelve. These are spiritual giants, 11 of whom had been personally discipled by Christ over a three-year period. But you see, our tendency sometimes is when there's problems is to find someone to blame. But some problems simply come out of growth. And so having diagnosed the problem, I also want you to notice how they determine the priority. God has a solution for every problem that His church faces. And what we find here in Acts 6 is that the solution is deacons. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to diakoneo, that is to deacon, to serve tables. Right here in Acts 6, we find the first term translated deacon in its verb form. Now, of course, the statement implies that some of the murmuring must have been directed against the apostles. You know, why aren't you apostles serving these widows? And the most natural thing in the world would, would have been for the apostles to set aside their priorities to serve the tables. But the point of verse 2 is very simple. We must not compromise our spiritual priorities to meet this legitimate need. They weren't against food. It's necessary to survive. They weren't against seeing the needs of widows being met. Paul's going to instruct us in 1 Timothy 5 that the church ought to meet the needs of widows, especially those who are widows indeed, as he'll define for us later on. They're not against organization because God is a God of order and a manifestation of God's spirit at work is order. They just knew it would not please God if they neglect the word of God to win the lost and to feed the save, where it's empowered through a personal life of prayer, if they neglected those responsibilities in order to take on other responsibilities. And that's why we at this church take this deacon ministry so very, very seriously. Because if a deacon does his job well, I'll be able to do my job well. Listen, a preacher who's always available is not worth much when he is available. A preacher who neglects his calling to feed and first nurture himself in the Word of God, that he might nurture both the lost and the saved, a preacher who neglects his personal prayer life, won't be worth much when he is available. And in case someone didn't catch the importance of what they are trying to communicate, they repeat themselves here in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves 
to prayer and in the ministry of the word. According to this verse, a man who will have a ministry of impact must be a man who prays and prepares. And when a deacon does his job, well, he frees his pastor to do that very thing. Now, while this pastor is not claiming to be an apostle, I'm not an apostle. There are no apostles today. To have been an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Lord, hand-selected by the risen Lord, and you had to have those signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could have. So when you see on some church sign, apostle so-and-so, that person obviously has missed the simple teaching of Scripture. But while I am not an apostle, like the apostles and the pastoral epistles as we've been studying, pastors are directed to spend the bulk of their time in feeding on the Word of God, first for themselves, that they might feed others, and to pray that they might in turn have power in their ministry. So here are some men. They diagnose the problem. They determine the priority. Third, they delegate the responsibility. Very practically and wisely, they solve this problem. Look at verse 3. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Now, the apostles act with such wisdom in handling this problem. Since this was a local church problem, since it was a dispute amongst the people, well, they wisely asked the people to do the selecting. However, it's very clear that the final approval is not with the people. This is not congregationalism. The final approval is with the apostles, whom we may put in charge of the task. They still take responsibility for the final selection. But in addition, I find it interesting that they asked them to select seven men. Not four, not six, but seven, which forces from the start a spirit of cooperation between the Hellenistic and Hebraistic Jews. Some would be, maybe have four Hellenists, maybe four Hebrews, uh, or four Hebrews and three Hellenists, or vice versa. So it creates a spirit of cooperation right from the beginning. And they have these men selected so that the apostles can do what they're called to do. Now, every pastor has felt the pressure of those who say, no, only the pastor can serve me. Unless the pastor gives us his ministry, we don't want it. My pastor has to be the one who visits me in the hospital. Now, I'd like to visit every person in the hospital here if I could. But I can't. Not if I am to do what God has called me to do, and not if you are to do what God's called you to do, especially those of you who have the gift of mercy. Oh, my pastor has to pray with me. I can't pray with every person. But God has called us in a spirit of prayer to pray for one another. Oh, it has to be my pastor who counsels me. Well, it may be, but it doesn't have to be. And very often, God will use other people who know the Word of God, who open it up and directly from the Scripture in a newthetic fashion, they take the Word of God and open it up and provide some solutions. And really, any growing, maturing Christian is increasing in his ability or ought to be to do that. Now, there are many times that pastors will yield to that temptation for them to do the ministry and focus in areas where they're not supposed to focus. And when they do that, something has to go. Very often, it's their family. I mean, how many preachers' kids do you know live like the devil? It's almost a joke in America. Look, I don't care if my children are 3 or 33. 
if they are not walking with Jesus Christ, I will step out of the ministry. I will not serve in the office of elder. Now, I know that there are secretly people in the church who would wish that. And they have evil motives. But I am so thankful for this multitude of Christians who pray for me, who pray for my family, who pray for our success. Now, I know that I could serve in some other capacity for the Lord, but I could not serve in the office of pastor if my family goes down the tubes. And I've seen a lot of pastors lose their kids because they're serving the people in a way God has not called them to serve. Or sometimes they lose their health. You know, most pastors I meet don't rust out. Oh, there's always lazy men in the ministry. But I meet a whole lot more who burn out before they rust out. But very often what goes is their ministry from the Word of God, and as a result, the people suffer. And very often out of frustration, the pastor just looks for another church. Because you see, when the people are underfed, all you hear continually, nonstop, is a bunch of murmuring and complaining. And it never stops. It makes a lot of guys wary. And they think somehow the grass is greener on the other side of the street, only to find to go to another church, it's the same problem, just different faces. You know, there's only a few men that I started with the ministry in 1978 who are still in the ministry. And most of those men who have left the ministry have left not for moral reasons. Most of them because they were disillusioned or deeply discouraged. D.L. Moody used to say, and I quote, better to put 10 men to work than for a pastor to try to do the work of 10 men. Certainly it's better for the pastor. Certainly it's better for those whom you give an opportunity to serve. And it's better for the health of the church as a whole. I know a lot of bitter men who are in the ministry or have left it because of its disastrous effects on their life. Now, this verse is very clear. Don't take the very first seven men who are available. Rather, select men who are qualified to do the job. And we commonly call these seven men here in Acts 6 deacons because the Greek cognate diakonia, which is used in verse 1, translated service, and diakoneo in verse 2, translated serve, simply means a servant. Throughout the New Testament, wherever you see the word servant, it's the Greek word diakonos. That's all it is. But when it's used in a formal sense, it refers to the office. But unlike the office of elder, you will be very hard-pressed to find a job description for the deacon in the New Testament. In fact, the exact nature of what a deacon is supposed to do is nowhere spelled out in the New Testament. And it doesn't have to be because the title says it all. A servant, a diaconess, is one who executed the commands of another. And the function of the seven was to assist the apostles. And back in 1 Timothy 3, having just given the qualifications and the role that an elder is to play, it becomes apparent that the deacons who follow serve at the will of the elders. And here in Acts 6, you find these seven men who are humble servants in the church, men who made it possible for the apostles to do what God had called them to do. It takes a servant's heart to be an effective deacon, and the body of Christ is in strong need of deacons who will fulfill the call to service as outlined in Acts chapter 6. Now, lest we forget, our study is out of 1 Timothy, but since our passage from chapter 3 refers to the office of deacon, which is primarily addressed in Acts, 
it is that book from which much of our study will be drawn. Regardless, this entire message is available by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program 1TM8, The Office of Deacon. And don't forget you can listen to the entire series from 1 Timothy as well as other books of the Bible at our website, searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, Dr. Berge will further examine the qualifications and duties of deacons as we search the scriptures.